stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. talk about uh get back to the 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 topic that i guess created the uh uh i'm going to try to use a word other than controversy uh that that led to the this invitation the kerfuffle (laughs) Uh, so fair admissions and 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 treating people on a on a a non-discriminatory basis uh, is something that we certainly uh, preach here at the new civil liberties alliance and so for example we have uh, we have litigation going against uh, NASDAQ and the, the Securities and Exchange Commission over its uh, board diversity requirements because yeah, yeah. they have they have set up a rule that yeah. requires uh, a minimum number of folks on the board with a certain you know, gender and, and race or sexual orientation. You know, California had such a law that was just uh, overturned, right? Correct. It was just struck down by uh, uh, under California state law, I believe. Exactly. And so this case that, that we're involved in is pending at the Fifth Circuit in Texas and is a uh, in federal court. Uh, and the, the You filed it there are, on purpose because you think that it will be more sympathetic? Or? So uh, we actually filed in the Third Circuit, in, in, uh, which is based in Philadelphia, but there was a pre-existing case that had been filed, and our case was consolidated uh, with that case in, uh, in Texas. Where's Judge Ho, I think his name is? I've read some of it. Is he in the Fifth Circuit? He is in the Fifth Circuit. Because I've read uh, some of his stuff, and he, he seems to be... Uh, speaking of University of Chicago guy, so Jim was a classmate of mine. Oh actually. wow! So, yeah, uh, it, it just uh, his opinions have been so clear, and he, he just gets the issues involved here. He will he will be delighted to hear you say that. <laughs> but uh, uh, so the reason I mention this is, I feel like there's probably a connection between what we see on the university campuses where these policies are yeah, yeah. are are maybe uh, incubated. Uh, and then what we see in wider society five, 10, 20 years later, if that's, if that's true, what can we do on the university campuses now yeah. to inculcate a broader perspective on the part of, of students yeah, yeah. to, to inoculate them, if you will, to feed them the peanuts, if you want to, if yeah, you want to yeah, use yeah, yeah. Jonathan Haidt's uh, terminology. Yeah. Well, so it's funny because it spreads, it starts in one of these radicalized departments and then it spreads to the university and then like it shows up in my office. And so like, I just want to be doing science and working with the best scientists possible. And instead, we're talking about DEI half the time. And then it spreads to the whole rest of society. And so uh, it's, you're, you're right that it, it sort of like goes out in these waves right. and circles. So what do I think we should do to fix the problem on campus? What's right. Dorian Abbott's prescription? Uh, first, you have to understand who's causing the problem. And... Freedom of expression is actually not being supported by faculty very well. So there's basically two types of faculty. This is like super uh, generalization. But there's sort of two types of faculty on a typical university campus. There's the ones in the, in the sophisticated technical fields, rigorous fields. Uh, and those can be in various areas. They can be in the social sciences. They can be in the sciences. Uh, they, you, you, can, you can have a classicist who is in that type of field. 
And so these people are so obsessed with their field that they don't have time to deal with BSBS. Don't pay a lot of attention to what's going on outside. Yeah. And there's just no way to get to the highest level to get tenure in that area. And so I was like that. I had no, no idea what was going on. And like, I stumbled into this mess and, and I only know about it because I had to figure out what the heck was going on so that I could respond and defend myself. Uh, okay. So that's category one. And they just don't think much about academic freedom. They take what they have for granted and they just stay in their lab and do their work. And then there's the people in the not rigorous fields, uh, and they are often actively antagonistic to academic freedom. They don't think of the purpose of university as a pursuit of truth. They think of the purpose as university faculty as activism. So this is a this is a base camp for yeah exactly. For, you know you've got to use your your uh, privilege to actively try to change society. That's the whole thing that we're. That's the whole point of what we're doing. We're not trying to pursue the truth. We're trying to change society and reshape it in a way that we think would be better. And these would be people who would be in, like, in any department that's called, like, X studies, something studies. They would tend to be more in this category. But they've spread. You know, like, an English department would have a lot of people now, like, you know, they're not going to be teaching Shakespeare and just so into Shakespeare that they want to spend their life reading Shakespeare. They're involved in this, you know, activism stuff, and they're not necessarily ready to defend academic freedom because it's not the most important thing to them. So these are the two main categories, but neither of them is, is, tends to be ready to defend academic freedom. And so the faculty are not necessarily the best advocates in this case. I hear from hundreds and hundreds of faculty who are scared with good reason and not willing to speak up. And we do have an organization, we have about 50 people at UChicago called UChicago Free. The UChicago Economics Department is considered right wing. Uh, but the current UChicago Economics Department has almost, I think there's only one person who identifies as a Republican. I was going to say, I think, I think Austin Goolsby was, uh, was Barack Obama's uh, yeah. uh, lead economist. So. Casey Mulligan definitely identifies as a Republican. Okay. But I'm not sure there's anybody else there. Uh, so, so what's different now? I mean, we had, uh, as far back as like 1990, we had books on tenured radicals, or we had Alan Bloom's Closing of the American yeah. Mind. Is there something that, that has happened so that process, that, time that, yeah, that, that process that was identified by writers like you mentioned has just accelerated and reached its uh, end game. And so Lee Jessam has the exact statistics who I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. I think it was in the 80s and 90s when you mentioned, I think about 80% of faculty were left-wing. And according to Jessam's statistics, it's more like 95% now. So there's a tipping point. It's, at some point, just there, there aren't so enough extreme. people on campus yeah. with a diverse viewpoint that... They just can't... Yeah, there's nobody there who's willing to advocate for the other side. Or there's just not, a, like you say, not enough that it makes a difference. And so I think that's probably the issue. Okay, and then the talking about our various uh, actors who could influence the academic freedom situation. So your original question was, what what can we do? Right. Okay, so faculty... Probably, I have a theory I'll run by you, but I want to hear yours first. Faculty probably cannot be relied upon. Okay. Uh, well, that's discouraging because, the, if anything, I have to think that the administrators at the university are even right. further so left point than two, the faculty. Point two is the administrators. Their uh, interests are often not aligned with the supposed interest of the university, which is the pursuit of truth. Their interests 
tend to be, well, more about like uh, compliance. Get, yeah, getting, you know, moving higher up in the administration. Right, increasing and budget. Increasing budget and uh, finding jobs for more minions, which makes them more powerful, which means they make more rules so that they have more things for their minions to enforce, and then the administration grows and grows and grows. Sure. Okay, so those guys, we can't count on them. I mean, there, there could be someone here or there who's going to be sympathetic, but it's not, we're not going to count on them. Uh, I think the, the main agents who can help are the alumni and the public. And so the alumni, their leverage is that they, uh, they give donations, mm-hmm. and alumni tend to care about their institutions. And so the other thing is they come from the student body, which tends to be less extremely polarized. It's still polarized, but less polarized than the faculty and the administration. And so there, there have been free speech alumni groups forming across the nation, and they have been writing letters to the presidents and you know, saying, we're not going to give you guys any money anymore. Or they'll take their money and give it to someone else. So, for example, at Princeton, there's this Madison program run by Professor Robert George, mm-hmm. Who invited me to give the lecture at MIT that I was supposed to give at MIT on the same day? On the same day, you, you gave you yeah, gave yeah, the yeah. lecture at Princeton instead. And I think like more than three. Well, maybe you shouldn't be here. You weren't really deplatformed then. So. Yeah. It, <laughs> well, yeah. It, I'm just teasing. It was a different. I was I was re, I was uh, translated trans platform. Trans platform. <laughs> yeah. Went from one <laughs> platform to another platform. Right. But uh, so they, you know, people after that, the alumni said, "I'm." Not, to Princeton, look, I'm going to give my money directly to the Madison program. And so that's one one type of leverage. Sure. And then here's the other one that you might be interested in. So this is more of a proposal that I would like to discuss. I'm not saying necessarily this is the solution because obviously I'm not a lawyer. And I don't think about the it, – it's very important to think about the, the long-term consequences of things, and that's not – uh, this isn't my field, so I haven't thought that through. But so here's the point I would like to I don't to know. Discuss. You said Mercury is going to maybe go out of orbit in five billion years. It sounds like you're in it for the long term. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I don't know about legal long term consequences sure. and uh, what could you know unexpected results. So here's the proposal. So we have in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, we have Title VI and Title IX, which uh, are supposed to prevent discrimination on the basis of race and sex. Right. Uh, and so any institution that takes federal money, either through uh, scientific grants or uh, tuition, has to, uh, as a condition, they have to be compliant with Title VI and Title IX. So my proposal is that we have some sort of legislation that says you have to ensure academic freedom and you have to uh, ensure political neutrality. You can't make political statements as a university in order to receive federal funding. Now, this the reason that I'm worried about that it might be a bad idea, so the reason it's a good idea is because most of the public would support something like this from both sides. And But the reason here's the reason I'm worried it's a bad idea. So what if you have the guy who's appointed by the government to certify that the university is upholding academic freedom who's actually a left-wing ideologue and antagonistic to academic freedom. And so that's sure. and so how do you ensure that such a situation doesn't arise? And so anyway, so what do you think about that idea? Oh, now you're talking about getting the administrative state involved. I'll tell you what I think about that when we get back. Keep it here on Administrative Static. 
We're back now with Professor Dorian Abbott from the University of Chicago. Before we went to break, Professor, you asked my opinion about passing legislation that would force publicly funded universities to protect academic freedom and ensure political neutrality. So if you're talking about your flagship state universities, uh, typically the uh, those universities get a fairly substantial amount of their funding from the state legislative sure. process. And the state legislatures, uh, almost everywhere you go, uh, tend to be a fairly good reflection of the of the population. Because but that's the nature of the it's system. That, right, yeah. that's the, it's representative democracy, right? So there may be some states, and I don't know where Illinois would, would, would fall on this uh, spectrum, there may be some states where the flagship state university would be able to persist in this sort of uh, far-left liberal, uh, uh, non-diverse, non-academically diverse, non-ideologically diverse position. But I think in a lot of states, if the state legislature really took an interest and said, look, you, you cannot continue to have a one-sided perspective, yeah. uh, that, that from a funding standpoint, the universities would be forced to, uh, to have different hiring practices, have different uh, neutrality practices, uh, as you're talking about. I think that there's less risk there uh, because there's so much responsiveness on the part of, of elected officials. I think it's trickier when you, and one of the things we worry about at the New Civil Liberties Alliance is empowering bureaucracies, empowering yeah, 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 yeah. administrative that's why I asked you that question. agencies. And, uh, but see, that's a real leverage because the, the public is funding. You know, like the reason you Chicago can exist the way it does is because of public funding, right? We would have okay. a totally different business model if we had to depend entirely on student tuition. Sure. And so the public should have some say. And a different admissions model. If you had to depend entirely on exactly on tuition, yeah, I mean, okay, I guess you could still have doing it. You could still have the endowment and whatever, but right. but it seems to me that the public, it, you know, they the public thinks that they're funding universities to deliver on you know increasing knowledge and educating students, and if they're not doing that, then the public should be able to say, well, you know, that's fine, you can do your thing on your own, but we don't want to pay for it, right. No, I think that's right. There, if there's no public benefit to the kinds of research that are, that's being done or the kind of of, uh, uh, of education that's being given out, then the reasons it's to worse. support it it's are worse. And when we have a what twenty some trillion dollar yeah. uh, deficit, it's worse than debt, no benefit. Right? Like you pointed out, all all of these terrible ideas are spreading out of the university. It's so a detriment. You're fu- sure. you're funding something that's destructive to society. And it seems like seems to me that the public should be able to in some way influence it. But I don't know what the instrument is. If you don't like my idea, do you have another idea for what sort of instrument could be used to affect that solution? Well, I think that if you if, if the state legislatures uh, were to exert more influence over the flagship state universities, I think that there would be a, a knock-on effect to, to the private universities as well. If you, Because I think students actually would be attracted to flagship state universities that, that had a more yeah, intellectually yeah. diverse viewpoint, there'd be more competition for those students. And then I think private universities would, would, from an admission standpoint, say, well, if we're going to lose talented students to universities that are actually preaching intellectual diversity and and living by it, then we may need to change our way of doing it as well. Maybe that's uh, Pollyanna-ish to think that that uh, would happen that way. But yeah, I I have more confidence in that than I do in a federal bureaucracy dictating anything to, uh, to private universities. Yeah. Uh, but let me ask you, uh, I saw in one of the articles that was written about uh, about your experience that your your wife is from uh, Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and and she had a particular perspective on on what what happened. Is that something you can share with our audience? Yeah. So, uh, well, I'll, can I tell a few stories? Sure. So when I first met my wife, uh, she showed me a picture of her mother. Her mother's a teacher, and two colleagues. And it it was like there's a day in Ukraine where every, all the children bring flowers to the teachers, and so they were each holding flowers and they were scowling at the camera. And I said, why aren't they smiling? And she said, she looked at me like I was crazy. And she said, no one who lived through socialism smiles. And so it turned out that was a little bit of an exaggeration, but in public, it's true. It's much more true. So people who lived through socialism don't tend to smile in public uh, because they're scared of, you know, who knows what could happen? Like, right. you know, like someone's like, working behind that smile. Why yeah, are you happy? What, exactly. are you, what are you getting away with? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, but she does smile at home and make jokes and stuff. Uh, so that's sort of, she was born, my wife was born in 1989 at the tail end of, of the socialist system. But even so, they were still persecuting. So she was baptized in secret because her mother would have been fired. So the priest came to her house. Her mother would have been fired if they knew that uh, she was a Christian. Right. And so there was repression all the way to the very end. And then, you know, when just like other randoms, it is about Ukrainian democracy, you know, like my wife, they, they paid you to vote there, or at least they did when she was there. Mm -hmm. And so uh, she took the money, but then she voted for who she wanted to vote for. And her mother was really, really mad at them, at her. And she said, they're going to come. They're going to count the votes in our village. And they're going to come punish us all if the votes don't match what they paid for. And so it kind of gives you a sense of you yeah. know, what, uh, what it's like to live through. That didn't happen. But what it's like to live through that sort of system. Sure. And uh, so anyway, so when I started telling her about what was happening, you know, what I was observing, she said, that reminds me of what my mother told me about Soviet times. And... I don't know, it just, that had a big effect on me. Like, that, that, we can't have that here. You know, if that, if someone who's so close to that experience, if that's the first thing she thinks of, we, we got to do something about this. So that really inspired me to say, to speak out about these issues. But then when I first got in trouble, I thought I might get fired. And so I told her that. And she said, you know, I know what it's like to be hungry and not have enough food to eat. I know what it's like to be cold and not have warm clothes, and I'm not afraid of that in this country. I'm with you. Whatever happens, just you know, say what you need to say. And so that's when you have that kind of support, it's much easier to uh, you know go against a a system that is you know you feel is unjust and that you need to say something about. Absolutely. Well, I'm. I'm thrilled that we have uh, some professors out there who are still willing uh, to take a stand. But uh, uh, but I wanted to, to find out. So you were able to eventually uh, so give the give the lecture to the James Madison program at Princeton. How did it uh, How did it go over? Well, it was fun. It was just you know science is supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be this you know stupid fight. Everything. The students at Princeton didn't converge in mass and no, shut, well, it was shut on, down the lecture. No, it was on or... Zoom. Okay, okay. So, but uh, everyone, you know, like, everything's not supposed to be politics. There's different parts of life, and, you know, you should be able to go have fun and do science with people that you disagree with about who should be the president. 
And so, you know, that's, that's what it was like. We just, we had a fun meeting, you know, thousands of people attended and uh, I got many dozens of emails from people who watched it, who had questions about the science and we talked about the science and we had a great time. Terrific. As it, as it should be. We, uh, a couple of people here have heard me talk about, uh, about this, uh, but one of the ideas I was exposed to at, at Chicago in law school uh, was the idea of incompletely theorized agreements is the fancy term for it. But it basically means we don't have to agree on everything to agree on some things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if we, if we have a world in which uh, before we can even engage in scientific discourse, we have to agree on 100 other things that have nothing to do with the scientific conversation we're having then we are not going to have the same sorts of rich scientific conversations uh, that, that we need to have. Or, or the same thing in the commercial world. If I have to, I mean, if, if you're selling a chicken sandwich and I want to buy a chicken sandwich, that should be the extent of the, of the transaction. If we have to agree on a on 100 other uh, political yeah. points, then, uh, you know, I'm going to be buying fewer chicken sandwiches. They're going to be selling fewer chicken sandwiches. And and commerce will no longer be a lubricant for social relations. It'll be an irritant. And yeah. so I think this is an important concept that, that we don't need to agree about everything in order to have free discourse. Yeah, so that is an extremely unpopular. So what you just said would get you called a fascist and a Nazi. Uh, that's an <laughs> it wouldn't ex- be the first time. That's an ex- extremely unpopular position to be advocating. And, and, and that argument should be made more clear. I mean, let me give you an example. Although I will say that argument was made, I was taught that by Cass Sunstein, who's he's now at Harvard Law School, but it, uh, certainly a left-wing uh, That's professor. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. have, all, we don't have to straightjacket everything into right left. Yeah. But uh, that, that argument uh, right now, so what, it's more like silence is violence is the term that people would use. So if, you know, if you're going to be even silent, you don't even have to, you can't even stay silent on these issues. You have to positively affirm the accepted narrative or else we don't want you anywhere near us. Right. You can't sell chicken sandwiches if you're not. Yeah. It's not that you can't even, you know, sell chicken sandwiches and have a pleasant disagreement about who should be president. If you aren't with the right guy, then you shouldn't even be allowed to sell them. And if you aren't willing to put up the sign that says, I support this guy, you know, the green grocer, you know, the green grocer story. I don't. The, it's about the workers of the world unite sign. It's a Czech dissident. And he has this story of the green grocer and why does this guy put up the sign workers of the world unite? So everyone's got to be the green grocer now. Everyone's got to put up the right sign or else uh, they want to make it so you can't participate in society. Well, I think that about runs out of time uh, today. So uh, thank you for, for coming and sharing uh, your views uh, here at the New Civil Liberties Alliance. We're delighted to uh, to give a platform uh, to folks who have been deplatformed and help to, to spread some of these views. I, I you know, I, I think that uh, the kind of uh, fair admissions that, that you practice and that you encourage others to practice is, is what we need in order to uh, to keep academic uh, freedom alive and appreciate your commitment uh, t- uh, to doing that and appreciate your uh, sharing your story with our audience today. Before we go, I want to encourage our listeners to check out NCLA's speaker series, Wine and Cheese, where we uncork the canceled and decant with the deplatformed like Professor Abbott. I invite you to tune in at nclalegal.org. Join us next week when John Vecchioni will be back to help me expose the unlawful side of administrative power. See you next time.